as artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us go to gigantic.is that's gigantic.is and save your seat for our january cohort your potential is gigantic and we're here to help you reach it go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today michael what if i were to tell you that today's episode was all about jedi training jedi training well okay that sounds pretty I don't know, fantastical, but uh, I'm into it. All right. Well, well, good, because you should be. But I'm not talking about Star Wars Jedi training here. I'm actually talking about something different, uh, but actually something way more important. Okay. Um, but look, I'm still into it, but you're going to have to give me some clues. <laughs> okay. Well, I will tell you that today's episode, this is another industry special, so to speak. Uh, you know, Product Collective, we, we do have our upcoming virtual edition of Industry, the Product Conference. It's October 5th and 6th. And you know, has product leaders from Peloton, Kickstarter, TikTok, Asana, uh, all sorts of companies. You could check all that out at industryconference.com slash virtual. Of course, use the code rocket chip. You'll save some money off your pass. But 
with all that out of the way, I want to tell you today's episode, it's actually a bit of a throwback to the last virtual edition of industry where one of our keynote speakers, well, she took us on a bit of Jedi training, but again, not the Star Wars kind. Well, I can't wait to find out what kind of Jedi training we're talking about. So let's get the intro out of the way and then we can find out. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. All right. I know I've been teasing things by talking up this Jedi training, but before I get into what I'm actually talking about, let's actually hear from the person who will be taking us on this journey today. I'm Teresa Torres. I work as a product discovery coach. I've had the luxury of working with teams all over the world, and I teach them a structured and sustainable approach to continuous discovery. I've worked with teams in all industries, regulated industries, consumer companies, B2B companies. Teresa Torres, she's great. Yeah, she's one of the leading voices in product management today. No doubt about that. Yeah, Teresa was actually one of the very first people I started learning from once I got my first true product role. Um, it was Ash Moria, who we heard from last week, and Teresa. Their two blogs were basically my own sort of self-made product management school, so to speak, uh, when I was just starting out. And this Jedi training. Yeah, it's not Jedi as in Star Wars, but Jedi is actually an acronym that represents something else altogether. Today, we're going to be talking about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. The events in the world in 2020 is what really motivated me to dig in and start to explore this topic. And I really am just a beginner. Uh, but as I've started to explore it, I've realized that a lot of the sort of design principles and things that are coming out of um, sort of the design justice world really layer nicely onto a lot of the principles driving continuous discovery. Uh, so what I'd like to do today is take my continuous discovery framework and talk about how we might adjust or modify it to help us build more just or more equitable products. Justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. I like this. So yes, maybe not the Jedi training we were thinking of, but this is something really, really important, Mike. And Teresa will be talking about all of this through the lens of her customer discovery framework. That's right. Yeah, Teresa developed her very own customer discovery framework, which is central to the work she does today. In fact, she recently released a book, Continuous Discovery Habits, that goes really deep into that framework, and it's definitely worth checking out. But today, she's going to be thinking about how that very framework can be reimagined, so to speak, to better support justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. These are such important topics, especially in tech, and Teresa will be the first to tell you that she's not necessarily an expert on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. They're just incredibly important to her. And she wants to do her part in exploring how the product world can do a better job when it comes to these areas. And, well, we'll let Teresa tell you in her own words why this is important to her. And she'll even start with some examples of how tech, well, may be failing us in these areas. So obviously last year in 2020, we saw a lot of social justice issues arise around the world. Um, we know in the tech industry that we've had challenges for a long time in terms of diversity of our employees. Uh, but we also see these challenges show up in the types of products that we build. So I wanna start with a couple of examples. The first is a pulse oximeter. So you may not be aware of this. This is a little device. It's become much more uh, commonly known about this past year with the COVID pandemic. Uh, it measures the oxygen, oxygen saturation level in your blood. Um, and it turns out this device works better if you have fair colored skin than if you have darker colored skin. 
Um, so what we're seeing in this product, and it's actually a pretty critical health device for measuring um, how severe, for example, your COVID cases, um, it works better for some people and not for other people. So we're seeing an example where some of the biases that show up in our communities are also showing up in our products. But it's not just medical devices where there are inequalities, right? The very tech products that many people use on a daily basis, well, you can clearly see this in those products as well. We saw in 2020, Facebook get hammered for their role in spreading misinformation, for their role in supporting hate groups. Maybe not actively directly supporting face, um, hate groups, but allowing them to flourish on their platform. Another one that I, I see come up a lot is just this idea of why all of our voice assistants, so we're talking about Siri, we're talking about Alexa, Cortana, why they all have female names. And these companies have actually taken criticism for this before, and the way that they defend their choices is they say, look, we did discovery, we did the research, we talked to our users, and they prefer female names. What's happening here is that we're actually seeing a bias in our communities where we associate female names with a caring trait, and then we're replicating or perpetuating that bias in our products. But there's a little bit more to the story here. So for most of us, when we think about a caring female, we tend to picture someone like a nurse, maybe a school teacher, uh, maybe a caregiver, right? We don't um, think, for example, of a scantily clad woman in a video game. Cortana, she's a character from the video game Halo, uh, you might also know that Cortana is the name of Microsoft's voice assistant. So when we're looking at how biases show up in our products, I don't think it's as simple as they did the research and people think that women are more caring and they want their voice assistant's name to be a female name. Obviously, there's a little bit more going on here. And even if it was that simple of like, we prefer female names because they're caring or female voices because they're caring, we're actually seeing that that research is because of the existing biases, the existing hierarchies in our communities. And so what's happening is we're building those biases, those hierarchies, those social inequities into the products that we're building. Think about that for a minute. I'll be honest, we've done episodes on platforms like Alexa, for instance. I didn't even really think about why is it Alexa? Why not, I don't know, Frank. <laughs> right, and Amazon may say to Teresa's point, well, hey, we've done the research. This is what people want. but. There's so many holes you can poke in that. Were we involving the right people in the research? And even if they were, and that was what people wanted, it may be individuals' biases showing through that leads them to say that. Absolutely. That's a great point. Teresa's is mentioning some really big platforms already, companies like Amazon, Facebook. But she recalls a quote from a founder of another major tech behemoth. And this quote gives us a little, I don't know, hope. Well, here's Teresa. So I want to start with this quote by um, Steve Jobs, where he basically says that everything around us in the world was created by people, and those people were no smarter than us. Actually, Michael, I know what quote she's referring to, and don't you think it'd be impactful to actually hear it from Steve Jobs himself? Yeah, we can, we can do that. Well, thanks to the Silicon Valley Historical Association, we can. They have this interview with Steve Jobs up on their YouTube channel, and, well... Here he is. When you grow up, you tend to get told that the world is the way it is, and your your life is just to live your life inside the world, try not to bash into the walls too much, uh, uh, try to have a nice family life, uh, have fun, save a little money. Um, but life 
th that's a very limited life. Life can be much broader once you discover one simple fact, and that is everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can, you can build your own things that other people can use. And the minute that you understand that you can poke life and actually something will, you know, if you push in, something will pop out the other side, that you can, you can change it, you can mold it, um, that's maybe the most important thing, is to shake off this, uh, th this uh, erroneous notion that life is, is there and you're just going to live in it, versus embrace it, change it, improve it, make your mark upon it. This quote's really inspiring. It means we get to create the world that we live in. But it also comes with a strong sense of responsibility. We look around the world and we see these unjust products or these inequitable products. We have to start to ask, how can we contribute to solving this problem? All right, we should pause right here for a minute to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Before the break, we heard Teresa Torres begin to take us on a bit of Jedi training, but not the Star Wars variety, a more important kind. Teresa started to help us think about how we can do a better job of incorporating justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion into the customer discovery process. Just before the break, we heard a pretty insightful quote from Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. It's a reminder of the world we live in today, especially the world of tech. Well, it's a world that's been created by people that weren't necessarily any smarter than any of us. And what that means is we can change that world that we live in. We can make our own impact. Although as Teresa notes, that comes with some responsibility. It's on us to do something about the inequities that we see. And Teresa has some thoughts on how we can actually do this. Now, I recently read a book that actually really helped um, formulate some of my thoughts around this. It's called Design Justice. And one of the principles from this book is to design with and not for. Right, so design with your customers, design with your constituents, not for them. And I really love this because I think it gets at the heart of continuous discovery, right? Why are we continuously engaging with our customers? Because we wanna make sure that we're designing with them and not for. Now I really wanna emphasize that this is not how most of the tech industry works today. In fact, you might've heard of quotes, often people quote Henry, uh, Henry Ford, he says if I had asked customers what they wanted, they would've said faster horse. Uh, Steve Jobs even said customers don't know what they want until we show it to them. Um, and so we have some hubris in the tech industry where we believe that we're the experts and that we can design for people. So here's what I want to clarify. We are experts in technology, but our customers are experts in their own lives and their own needs and their own pain points and their own desires. And so really what we want to do when we talk about designing with is we want to combine this expertise, our expertise with technology, their expertise with their own lives and their own needs, and really co-create solutions together. And this co-creation mindset is a little bit different from what a lot of us are used to. In fact, a lot of teams operate on a validation mindset. So a validation mindset is when we say, 
We're the experts, we're gonna come up with the solution, we'll design it, we'll prototype it, and when we're done, we'll validate with our users, did we get it right? Now look, in a discovery world, we do need to do validation research. We need to confirm that what we built is gonna work. But we also can work with our customers much earlier and try to move closer to this designing with mindset instead of a designing for mindset. Designing with instead of for. I like this distinction, right? No, our customers can't simply tell us what they want, but it doesn't mean we ought to leave them out of the discovery process. In fact, we need them. We need their insights. They are the experts on themselves, not us, right? So it'd be silly to ignore our customers altogether. For sure, for sure. And hey, customers are absolutely a part of the customer discovery process. That's a part of Teresa's work. And here, she starts to talk about that very process and how the Jedi mindset can be integrated throughout. In that process, really starts with outcomes. So let's start there. So I teach an outcome-focused brand of um, product management. I believe that the, the negotiation of that outcome should be between the leader and the product trio. So what do I mean by the leader? The leader is your chief product officer, your vice president of product, your head of product, um, and your product trio is the product manager, the designer, and the technology lead who are working together to figure out what to build. The reason why this should be a two-way negotiation is because the leader is gonna communicate what the business needs. So the business is gonna be able to communicate in this moment in time, here's what we need from you, and the team can communicate how far we can get. Now during this negotiation, I think there's a few things that we can be doing to start to bring in some of these Jedi principles. The first is we need to start by asking better questions. So the first question when we're setting an outcome that we can ask is for the outcome that we're setting, do we have to maximize that outcome or can we satisfice? So if you haven't heard this word satisfice, it's this idea of like, is an option good enough? And why is this important when we're talking about outcomes? So a lot of companies are hyper-focused on growth. That's the business culture that we live in. And when we think about growth, if you work at a, in a B2B context, I'm guessing that your company is really focused on landing large enterprise clients. That's where the big money contracts are. Um, it's the biggest return on investment. The challenge is if all of us focus, all of us in the B2B space focus on enterprise clients, who's building software for the mom and pop businesses? And if nobody's focusing on the mom and pop businesses, what impact does that have on our communities? Who's being left out, right? So this is a question where we can start to think about if we maximize for enterprises, are we gonna live in a world where the only places we have to shop are Target and Walmart? Or can we start to look at, we need, businesses need to make money, that's the reality. So can we start to look at, we definitely need to bring in those big money enterprise clients, but can we also start to look at, can we service our underrepresented folks? Whether that's small mom and pop businesses, whether that's minority owned businesses, whether that's um, women owned businesses, and one of the ways to think about this, because you're not going to change your business culture overnight, you're not going to remove that focus on um, large enterprises, is you can start to think about counterweights. So a counterweight is you set your primary outcome. That's the outcome you're trying to drive. You may not be able to change that it's just going to be maximize large enterprise clients. But can you counter it with a metric that helps you start to assess are we also serving the little guys? Are we also serving the underrepresented business owners? And so we can use these two questions together to start to assess um, what impact are we having 
by focus, hyper-focusing on maximizing an outcome. The outcome that we choose defines the scope of who we're gonna serve. So when you're choosing your outcome, I want you to think about who are we including and who are we living, leaving out? Now, no product can serve everybody. Every product manager knows this, right? When you try to serve everybody, we build a, um, a product that barely works for anybody. So I'm not suggesting that your product has to serve everybody equally well. What I'm suggesting is that you be intentional about who you're deciding to serve and who you're deciding to leave out so that we don't end up with these unintended consequences where we have products like pulse oximeters that don't work as well for people with darker shade skin, right? That wasn't an intended consequence. That was because we weren't intentional about who we were trying to serve. And that's the thing we do need to be intentional about who we're serving and that intention it doesn't stop there. At least it shouldn't. We need to be intentional about the way that we're interviewing our customers as well. Yeah, and, and not just the actual interviews, but how we're setting up those interviews, who we're involving in those interviews. I mean, there's a lot to it. Let's go back to Teresa for more on this. The next part of my continuous discovery framework encourages teams to interview with their customers, to meet with their customers weekly. And the goal of those interviews is to discover opportunities. Now an opportunity is a customer need, a customer pain point, or a customer desire. This is where we're deciding which problems to solve. Um, this is where that designing with instead of designing for principle really comes into play. It's really easy to work with our customers to identify the right types of challenges to go after. And the reason why I encourage a continuous cadence is we're making product decisions every day, right? Some of them are big. What goes on our roadmap? What strategy do we go after? Some of them are small. Where do we expose this feature in the interface? What do we label this button? But all of them benefit from having customer input. And so as a result, I like to see teams engaging with customers every week. When we do this, we test our ideas before they're ready. We share pencil sketches, we share half-baked ideas. And when we're, when we're willing to do that, we start to shift away from that validation mindset that I talked about towards this co-creation mindset. Now, as we're interviewing, we wanna think about um, how do Jedi um, uh, concepts come into play? The first, if, the, if we're using our interviews to discover opportunities, the, the needs, pain points, and desires that we wanna address, we wanna start by asking who are we including in our interviews and who are we leaving out, right? So in the tech industry, we tend to be uh, very male dominated, dominated, very white dominated, very middle to upper class socioeconomic classes, very cisgender dominant. This is who dominates the tech industry and we tend to interview people like us. This is why in cities like San Francisco, we get 17 startups that will deliver food, but we don't get companies that are serving um, underrepresented folks because those people aren't involved in choosing the, the opportunities that we're gonna go after. So one of the easiest things you can do is start to ask this question, who are we including? Now it's not gonna be easy to change who you're talking to because you need to be able to find people that are not like you. But I wanna encourage you to just start asking these questions. How might you reach out to more diverse folks? And think on multiple dimensions, so not just race and ethnicity or gender, but also able-bodied. There's a lot of dimensions to this, so what I wanna encourage you to do is to take a continuous improvement mindset. You're not gonna wake up tomorrow morning and suddenly be able to interview a diverse set of people. So how can you make next week look a little better than last week? How can you get a little more diverse over time so that you start contributing to 
creating more just, more equitable products. Okay, let's pause a bit. We'll take a short break to hear from our sponsors. Before the break, we started learning about how we can incorporate better justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion practices into customer discovery, specifically the customer discovery process that Teresa Torres practices. And we left off hearing about how we can better interview our customers with the Jedi mindset. But Teresa had a couple more questions that we can ask ourselves on this, actually. L let's go back to Teresa now. The second question we can ask when interviewing is, are we extracting value without compensating? Are we giving somebody $25 and extracting a huge insight that drives our multi-million dollar product business? Is that really a fair trade-off? Now again, I don't know the answers here. I don't know what that looks like. I know in an enterprise context, if we're getting insights from customers, we probably shouldn't turn around and charge them for that product. Now you do need to make money, you need to charge some of your customers, but can we find a better balance of compensating our participants for the value that they're giving us? The third question we can ask when interviewing, are, how are we synthesizing what we're learning? A lot of teams use user personas. The challenge with user personas is that we tend to generalize across a set of interviews. When we generalize across a set of interviews, we end up falling back to our stereotypes. Our personas tend to represent either the majorities that we see in our communities or one-dimensional stereotypes of a minority that we see in our communities. What I encourage teams to do instead is to not create personas, but to create what's called an interview snapshot. It's just a one page template that summarizes what you heard in each interview. So rather than generalizing across your interviews, you're capturing in a one pager what you're hearing from each interview. This helps to remind you that you are designing for a set of unique individuals rather than generalizing to this ideal customer that really is gonna end up serving our majorities and leaving out our underrepresented folks. Okay, Teresa has actually covered a lot here, right? Especially through the lens of her customer discovery process. But we're not done yet. She's talked about outcomes. She's talked about customer interviews, but another part of the discovery is ideation. And again, this is where a lot of people go wrong. Especially when it comes to these topics, right? About justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. Teresa talks about a better way of approaching ideation here. So when we're, we've chosen a target opportunity and we're looking to solve it, what I typically rent, recommend is that um, the trio start to invite other members of the team and get the more diverse people that are generating ideas, um, the more likely you're gonna end up with diverse solutions and solutions that work for more than just um, the dominant majorities in our industry. And so this is an area where you can start by can we invite more diverse folks from our company into our ideation sessions? You can even go further and say, can we invite some of our customers into our ideation sessions? And you can even go further and say, how do we invite a diverse set of customers into our ideation sessions? Now, it's not enough to just invite people to these sessions, but you also need to pay particular attention to group dynamics and who you're listening to, which ideas get considered, which ones do you choose to pursue? Because even when we get a diverse set of people in the room, we tend to fall back on our biases that we already see in, in com our communities, where we tend to listen to the people in power, the people in the majorities. So you wanna be really thoughtful about um, who are we inviting and who are we listening to? 
Now, if you have any women on your team, if you have any people of color on your team, if you have anybody who's not able-bodied on your team, if you have anybody who doesn't identify as cisgender, ask them. They've probably had the experience where they were in one of your meetings, they suggested an idea, nobody listened to it, and somebody in the majority suggested it, and suddenly people glommed onto it. We don't do this intentionally. I believe most product teams have good intent, but the impact is that we're reinforcing the biases that we see in our community. Again, the point here isn't that we're intentionally leaving others out of the process or that we're trying to inject bias into our products, but look, it's happening. And whether there's intent or not, we can do better. Teresa has one last area where we can inject some of these Jedi principles into our work. So. Let's go back to Teresa one last time. Finally, the last area that we can start to introduce some of these Jedi principles into our work is when we're testing the assumptions that underlie our ideas. So what do I mean by that? Every solution that we consider has a number of assumptions. We have desirability assumptions. Does anybody want it? Are they willing to do what we need them to do? They have viability assumptions. Should we build this? Is it good for our business? They have feasibility assumptions. Can we build it? Is it technically possible? They have usability assumptions. Can anybody use it? Can they find it? Do they understand it? The category that we're pretty bad at um, in the tech industry that I want you to start thinking about are ethical assumptions. Is there any potential harm? And for a long time, I've thought about ethical assumptions as what data are we collecting? Are we collecting data that our customers are comfortable with us having? Do they understand how we're, they're store, how we're storing it, how we're using it? Are we selling it to third parties? But this is bigger than just the data that we collect. It also has to do with who are we testing with. So when we rely on A-B testing to tell us if an idea works or not, what we tend to look for is across our whole population, does it work more for one group than the, the variable group than the control group? The problem with this is that it could work for everybody in the majority and nobody in our underrepresented populations, and it could still pass our A-B test. So we need to learn how to get more sophisticated and get deeper with our testing and understand it works for this population, it doesn't work for this population, and stop thinking about everybody in our pool as the same. Finally, as we're testing our assumptions, we need to be really explicit about this, and not just in our A-B tests, not just in the data we're collecting, in our training sets, um, in our behavioral analytics, in our interviews, just across the board, taking a step back and saying, look, who are we designing for? Who is it working for? Who is it leaving out? This was definitely one of those episodes where there's not only so much good content, but really, really important content. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, think about it. If we could even put just some of these ideas into practice, our products, well, they'd probably be doing way more good for more people. People that are often overlooked when it comes to these sorts of discovery processes. Absolutely. So, Rocket Ship listeners, we hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode, which... Again, sort of a throwback to the last virtual edition of Industry the Product Conference. Just another example of the kinds of things you'll learn at Industry. So again, hope, hope you'll consider joining us uh, this October at Industry. And we'll have more bonus episodes just like this one on tap. So until then, for Mike Balsito, I'm Michael Saka, and this is Rocketship.fm. So long. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to the Podglomerate. 
rocketship.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.